This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This week on The Takeout, a CBS correspondent roundtable on impeachment. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week we are two things principally. What are those two things? Well, relentlessly curious, steadfastly non-ideological. I want to get right to what we're trying to accomplish this week. This is going to be an impeachment show about the facts as we know them now. Not about what the House or the Senate is going to do about it. Not necessarily very much about what the president said about it, but what we have learned so far. I want this to be a show that helps you understand the core dimensions of this story as they have been presented to the public so you can keep track of things going forward. We're going to do something slightly different this week to achieve that goal. Four different voices will come to the Takeout Podcast microphones this week, all four CBS News correspondents in their areas of expertise. First at the microphone, David Martin, national security correspondent extraordinaire. That is not an exaggeration. That doesn't even come close to describing his importance on that beat, both to CBS and the country at large. David, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here, Major. So let's just start with some real simple basics about Ukraine, the U.S. relationship, and military aid. The Ukraine story starts in 2014 with the uh, annexation by Russia of their far eastern province of Crimea. And that was the first time since the end of World War II that a border in Europe had been changed by the use of force. Unconventional military force. It was the new form of uh, Russian hybrid warfare, as they call it. Meaning Uh, non-uniformed? Non-uniformed, a lot of information operations, uh, disinformation operations, just keeping the level of force below the level that might uh, draw a military response from somebody. But still, to your point, a border was changed and people died. And... There's another border now that is under attack, that uh, the eastern part of the remaining country of Ukraine is under attack by Russian-backed separatists, uh, people who say they want to break away from the country of Ukraine and become uh, another republic of Russia. And that's Kind of a satellite of Russia. Yeah. And they mostly speak mm-hmm. Russian there. They do. They do. Um, and have kind of ethnic sensibilities, at least that Moscow asserts, are more akin or more aligned with Moscow than Kiev. 
Moscow makes a lot of assertions. Yes, about, it does. Uh, <laughs> you carry what's, on what's with going that. on in eastern <laughs> eastern Ukraine. But in any event, there is a war going on on that that border. The the uh, the separatists are attacking, and they they have artillery, and and they are killing people every day. And one of the great uh, debates at the end of the Obama administration is how much military aid do we give to Ukraine to help them defend against this? And the uh, the issue became, do we give them lethal aid, weapons that can be used to kill the other people, or do we just give them general improvements uh, in their military forces, uh, better communications equipment and things like that. Now, if I remember, David, being at the White House, this was a significant conversation within the Obama administration. There were those who pushed for lethal aid that President Obama ultimately decided against. Openly uh, pushed for it. Uh, Defense Secretary Carter uh, said uh, in his confirmation hearing that he was in favor of, of providing lethal aid, but it just, uh, it never got through the uh, Obama White House on the grounds that any aid we give them would just be uh, matched and uh, done one up on by the Russians and all you would do is would uh, be to escalate the level of violence. So when the Trump administration came in, that was uh, one of their points of departure from the Obama administration. They had many, but that was one. And uh, they started uh, providing lethal aid, weapons that could be used to kill the separatists. Right. Kind of game-changer weapons on the ground. And they have made a difference. They have made a difference. Uh, I've I've got a list here of of some of of what they supplied. Sniper rifles, rocket-propelled grenade launchers, counter-artillery radars, that may not be obvious at, at once, but that allows you to tell where the artillery is firing from and shoot back. Mm-hmm. So that is actually a very valuable piece of, of equipment. And then basic stuff like secure uh, radio sets so that the Russians aren't listening to your uh, every, uh, every communication. So <clears throat> in the current fiscal year, the year, I'm sorry, the last fiscal year, yes. the year that ended uh, this past September 30th. And the, the one for which this aid question hangs heavily in the air. That's right. The uh, Pentagon was uh, supposed to provide $250 million for lethal military aid. The State Department was going to provide 100, $141 million, hence the total of 391 Everybody uses the term $400 million in aid. That's, that's the breakdown. Very good. So there's a whole bureaucracy that goes with this military aid. Um, The first thing that had to happen is the Undersecretary of Defense had to sign off on uh, Ukraine having made enough progress in eliminating corruption from its defense establishment uh, to be able to use the aid in a meaningful manner and not not just waste it. So he did that twice, once in February, and once in May, he sent letters uh, to, the, to the committees that govern the, the spending of this money that, yes, they have met all the standards. And uh, so within 15 days of receiving this letter, uh, we are going to start dispersing that. So once you start dispersing, then the bureaucracy really kicks in. you got contracts to let. 
You've got export licenses to, to acquire. You've got transportation schedules to arrange. You've got delivery dates. So at some time in the summer of this year, that all ground to a halt. That would obviously be a subject of interest to the, uh, to the Pentagon as it tries to administer this aid. And the, uh, the witness who was uh, called to testify uh, yesterday, uh, Thursday of this week, uh, was uh, named Laura Cooper, and she was what the Pentagon calls a DASD, a Def- Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. Her area of specialty was Ukraine and Russia. So she would have been intimately involved in the provision of this aid, and she would have, I'm sure, wondered what happened. Why did this aid get stopped? Mm-hmm. We don't know what she found out when. We have uh, heard her ultimate boss, uh, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, say that he thought the holdup was over problems uh, still with uh, corruption in Ukraine and uh, with uh, President Trump's concern that other countries should be picking up right. more of the tab. So uh, one thing I want you to try to address in the time we have available, in the transcript of the call between President Trump and President Zelensky, there's a mention of Javelin. Can you help my audience understand what that is? Javelin is a, an anti-tank weapon. It's a, it's a missile that's uh, uh, shoulder-fired and can, uh, can stop a tank. So if you're facing armored forces, it's a piece of equipment you want. So in that other piece of money, not the $250 million from the Pentagon, but the $141 million from the State Department, they were able to use that money to buy Javelin anti-tank missiles uh, from the United States. And the role of the Defense Department in in that transaction would be to certify that, yes, uh, they have the capacity to learn how to use these anti-tank weapons, and, and they have the personnel available to do it. So that, uh, that sale went through. You know, the issue all summer is when you get to September 30th, the authorization to spend this money runs out. Because that's the end of the fiscal year. End of the fiscal year, and, and you're, it's a whole new ballgame. Right. So they want to get this money out the door by September 30th, but OMB has this hold on it. What's going on? David Martin, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to this special edition of The Takeout, uh, devoted to impeachment and the facts. That's it. With four voices from CBS News, four correspondents who deal with particular parts of this story. You heard David Martin. We're now going to hear from Margaret Brennan, senior foreign affairs correspondent, moderator of Face the Nation. Because there's a diplomatic component to this story. We're at Cafe Deluxe, by the way. Ani, our wonderful waitress, will be coming in and out with drinks and food, with the correspondents coming in and out. So we kind of have a moving feast here uh, this week at the takeout. So, Margaret, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. Facts as we know them on the diplomatic side of the Ukraine-slash-impeachment story. Just run with them. The basics. 
Well, the facts so far that have been presented in terms of those who have sworn an oath and given hours and hours of depositions, these are all diplomats or, or very uh, expert national security officials in their fields, including, of course, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, who's at the center of all of this. Marie, uh, Masha, as she is called, uh, Yovanovitch, who is the ambassador who was removed from post about two to three months early. And as she testified, was told by the number two position at the State Department, you've done nothing wrong, but you're being taken off the job because you have irritated the president, but you've done nothing wrong. Based on your experience, is that in it? of itself unusual. Incredibly unusual. You can certainly always serve at the pleasure of the president, and if he thinks you're not doing a good job, remove you from that post. But to be told uh, by the top levels of the State Department that you're being removed for something that has nothing to do with your capability serving this country or anything to do with national security, but rather sort of a whim, is shocking. And, And she testified to that. And for months, we knew there had been this concerted campaign against her that first showed up unusually in blogs um, in Ukraine and then conservative media in this country had started publishing information targeting the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And what's interesting is that we've since seen some of these uh, email exchanges that have been made public at the time where uh, officials are writing back and forth saying, Who's doing this? Why are they doing that? Why are they trying to make it look like these documents are from the U.S. government when they're obviously fakes? Why are they trashing this ambassador? So not only was she earning the ire of the president back in the United States, but there was disinformation being spread about her. She's someone who had been fighting corruption quite hard. And there is a lot of conjecture at this point as to what may have been the motivation in trying to remove her. But Mm -hmm. we know those things occurred leading up to her uh, exit. Now, those in our audience uh, might have heard about her, but have heard other names more prominently than her. You've identified her as key to this. Help my audience understand why you think she's so important to this. Well, this is, she's not only the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, the country at the heart of this scandal, but also uh, she has evidence and many others who have come forward and testified that there was this attempt to remove her because of this other side channel, not through official diplomatic means, but these unofficial things being done. And Does the side channel include Rudy Giuliani? Rudy Giuliani, yes. Also, another ambassador, EU ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sundland, who was not a career person, but a political one. He was a donor, which... To the inauguration of the president, also not unusual. Uh, not unusual. But, but they do catch the attention of people in the State Department who are Foreign Service officers. Totally. And I looked up the numbers. Um, It is uh, in the Trump administration, 55 percent of those ambassadors are career versus 45 percent political. That's the breakdown, meaning if you made a donation or you did something, you'd be considered a a political appointee if if you were chosen versus your level of experience. Under the Obama administration, 70 percent career, 30 percent political, so slightly more than the last administration. But it's not just because he was a political appointee, but the fact that he was the U.S. ambassador to the European Union. That has nothing to do with Ukraine. Ukraine's not in the European Union. Right. So the policymakers are saying, why is this guy who has nothing to do with this country all of a sudden helping to take over the policy around Ukraine? He has nothing to do with Ukraine. 
And why is the official sort of diplomatic channel being bypassed here? That raised eyebrows all the way back to the White House. Uh, you had Fiona Hill, who uh, is a longtime Russia expert, literally wrote the book on Vladimir Putin as a biographer. Who And she works where? She works at the Brookings Institution, but she did work at the Trump White House up until And the July. National Security Council. On correct? the National Security Council. That's, that's exactly right. And worked for John Bolton. She's viewed as a the Russia... The National Security Advisor. Former. Former. Uh, and she was viewed as a Russia hawk. Someone who saw Vladimir Putin as a threat. Not as a potential friend or ally. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as you know, for people often at the White House, they joke, it's amazing that you have someone who is such a hawk on Russia working in a Trump White House when they want to have better relations. That is a way of saying there are experts um, here who were working on the inside, who were seeing patterns and seeing things because they had that background. Ooh, that is fancy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Last time we did this, it was in we the White get House you booth. Yes. It was not nearly this no, fancy. No, not, not, not nearly this fancy. Exactly. Go back to the archives. We did a episode with Margaret Bennett in the White House booth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we'll get you one of these. It's quite tasty, actually. But this is a long tangent, but what is important from what Fiona Hill testified under oath is that uh, this is this incredibly important hot war in Ukraine. Russia literally seized some territory from uh, Ukraine, Crimea, right. and there's this war. David Martin just talked East. to us about that, right. So it's pretty amazing in a July 25th phone call in a place that we're giving weapons and arms to because of the war they're fighting, that that war is never mentioned in the course of this phone call at all. Right. The other things, the unofficial diplomatic channel issues were discussed. The things that the officials were bringing forward and concerned about and have testified to this week and last, George Kent, the top diplomat uh, in Ukraine, Bill Taylor at the Mm -hmm. moment, all testified to the fact that they thought what was important here was being sidelined for the political. And there has been some reference at the White House in the voice of the president and the vice president that some of these voices are part of a bureaucracy that is diametrically opposed to President Trump. And therefore, there is something, if not flatly wrong in what they're saying, something that's suspicious about what they're saying. Tensions between White Houses and State Departments are not new, but this feels and sounds different to me. How do you evaluate it as someone who's covered foreign policy and diplomacy for a long time? Well, this is really sort of a boiling point, but this has been a long time tension, particularly under the Trump administration, that the professional class, and that is to say the people who the U.S. taxpayer paid to learn the languages of the countries they're covering and stationed in, to uh, learn the local history and background, to be the professionals who have the expertise so that they can advance national security of the United States in the best way possible, that the Trump administration was choosing not to use them, instead favoring some of these political appointees. I read just the percentages for the ambassadors, but there are lots of other positions behind the scenes. So there was this frustration that not just the professionals were being bypassed, they weren't being appointed or promoted to particular jobs. This goes back to when Rex Tillerson was Secretary of State. But this is not just a Ukraine story. This has to do with so many countries, so many different policies, where those who are paid to be experts are told, you stay quiet and stay over here. Mm -hmm. And then more broadly, there's also this concern, and I hear this from European officials, from Arab officials who say, 
We're not sure who's in charge here or who to talk to. Do I talk to the professionals, the guy or girl who has my, uh, you know, is my counterpart at the State Department? Or do I have to figure out who the president's who the side friend person is? is. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and who actually speaks for the U.S. government versus his or her own private interests? There's right. a reason this bureaucracy was set up. Right. And it was to keep things professional and through channels that keep focus on national security versus personal benefit. Right. Do I deal with the diplomat or the side hustle? Exactly. In the last 40 seconds, I want to ask you this question because people have heard a lot about corruption in Ukraine. Is it a true thing? Very, very real corruption in Ukraine. I remember during the Obama administration, one of the top officials there said 40 percent of the bank accounts were Russian money parked in Ukraine. Um, But there is also real concern at the top of corporations throughout there and the government that that corruption is real. That's why this new president, Zelensky, was viewed and hailed as someone who was going to be a disruptor and get rid of that. In fact, he changed some of the laws uh, to be able to crack down on corruption more. So it's a real concern. There was real hope Zelensky was going to focus on it. What's interesting in this case is that the only specific instance that was ever consistently brought up by the president and his allies happened to be the Ukrainian gas company that Hunter Biden served on the board of. That's the voice of Margaret Brennan. More facts, ladies and gentlemen. Margaret, this is your area of expertise. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to this slightly unusual version of The Takeout. Four different voices, CBS correspondents, all areas of expertise dealing with the question of impeachment. And we're just trying to get you the facts as we know them. Not the spin that the politicians will give, the president will give, everyone will give, just the facts. Nancy Cordes, chief congressional correspondent for CBS, with me at the table here at Cafe Deluxe. Nancy, great to see you. Great to be with you in person, Major. So talk to the audience a little bit, Nancy, about the process. There's what they hear and what they probably see in their local newspapers on local news. It's unfair. There's something different about it. As factually uh, and as concisely as you can, lay out some of the areas of disagreement about the process. Sure. And and that is one of the biggest areas of disagreement is the way that this impeachment inquiry is being conducted. So Republicans say that this process is unfair because at the moment, all of the interviews and depositions are taking place behind closed doors. And if you are not a member of the three congressional committees that are involved in the inquiry right now, you can't sit in on the depositions, you can't ask questions, you can't even see the transcripts of most of the depositions that have taken place. So you're basically uh, just like another member of the public. You don't really know exactly what has happened. If you're a Republican, you want to defend the president. It's very difficult to do when you don't know what the witnesses have said. And to my understanding, there's even a sense of disagreement or grievance about the process within the room. Even if you are an authorized member 
of a relevant committee. Only certain people get to ask questions. You can't see a full transcript unless you come in and take notes by hand, and there's someone from the majority staff watching you as you take the notes. Those are also sort of, they're smaller things, but they go to a larger sense of grievance, it sounds like Republicans have. Sure, although these depositions have been lasting six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours, Republicans are getting several of those hours to ask questions. So it's not as if they can't ask. They can ask. And um, what Democrats point out is that this is hardly uncommon on Capitol Hill. There are many investigations, including Watergate and the Bill Clinton impeachment process, that involved closed-door hearings. Uh, The Benghazi Committee, most of the hearings and interviews that took place happened behind closed doors. Run by Republicans. Run by Republicans. Majority at the time. And at the time, Trey Gowdy said, I prefer to do those interviews behind closed doors. It's less drama. I get more information. And people behave much better when they are not performing for the public. They are just answering the questions. So this is not something that is all that unusual. And Democrats say, look, we don't have a special prosecutor here who is determining the facts. We don't have a Robert Mueller who's gathering the facts and then handing everything to us. We are doing the investigation, so we've got to do it behind closed doors. Uh, one of those Democrats sort of tantalizingly is now hinting that actually there is evidence that some of the witnesses have coordinated what they said in these depositions, which is all the more reason not to let them see transcripts of what the other witnesses have said. And they because said, investigators a- don't want witnesses sharing each other's information or testimony because that would either dilute or pollute the actual content. Exactly. And so they say this is a finite period of time where they're going to be conducting these closed-door interviews. It will probably last a couple more weeks. They've already got several more interviews lined up. And then they say not only will they make all the transcripts public, but that they will move into a public phase of hearings where some of the people who testified behind closed doors will come back and testify publicly. It's also been asserted by the White House that there is something illegitimate at the origin of this inquiry because it was announced by the Speaker but not voted on by the full House. So Republicans argue that for this inquiry to be legitimate, uh, the House needed to take a vote formally opening the impeachment inquiry. And as part of that, Republicans say, if a vote were to take place, then there could also be a debate about additional rights that the minority would get. As you know from covering the Hill for years and years, it's not great to be in the minority in the House. You have very little power. You don't have subpoena power. Uh, You really cannot shape the the debate or the discussion. And they... Your participation is determined by the whims of the majority. Exactly. And so Republicans believed that had there been a vote to formally open this inquiry, which is not required, that it would have enabled them to make the case, for example, that they could have subpoena power. So they could call the witnesses that they want to hear from, that Democrats wouldn't solely have that right. There's no indication that Democrats would have allowed that, but Republicans wanted the opportunity to make that would have had a chance to argue case. that in public. Yes. And then votes would have been cast and people would have at least been able to see how the votes fell on some of these questions. On the, on the other hand, uh, I really can't imagine a scenario where even if Democrats 
had taken that vote, that you would have Republicans right now saying, this is an incredibly fair process and we're very happy with the way it's unfolding. I, I can't see any scenario where Republicans would be satisfied with the fact that this president was undergoing an impeachment inquiry. Based on your interactions with Republicans, have they principally argued about process or the facts? There is a cadre of Republicans who have insisted that they are listening to these depositions and they see no evidence of a quid pro quo. But that is a small group of Republicans who are going to defend this president no matter what. What I see more broadly is Republicans retreating from defending the president on On the the facts. facts. First of all, because as more facts come out, uh, the facts don't look good, as John Thune, the number two Republican in the Senate, put it this week. Uh, And beyond that, they're concerned that, that they don't know what they don't know. And they're worried that they may defend the president on one point today and find out tomorrow that that point is not true. Speaking of, or picking up on the point, they don't know what they don't know. You had an interesting interaction with the Senate Majority Leader this week. I want to play for our audience. Zoe, that's number five. The president has said that you told him that his phone call with the Ukrainian president was perfect and innocent. Do you believe that the president has uh, handled this Ukrainian situation uh, We've not had any conversations on that subject. So he was lying about that? <laughs> you have to ask him. I, I don't recall any conversations with the president about that phone call. That Nancy fell this week in Washington into the wow category. And frankly, I was thinking wow myself because I assumed that the Senate majority leader might say, well, I didn't exactly use those words uh, or that's not how I recall it. I did not expect him to say we didn't even have the conversation in the first place. And I think that's an example of what we were just discussing, which is that Republicans are increasingly nervous about trusting what the president And some of his aides have said because they're finding that the president has misled people about, you know, about about what happened. And this is just a small example of that. The president claimed they had a conversation. They didn't. Is there anything factual that we can convey to the audience about timing or is that mostly speculative at this point? It is uh, a mix of speculation and wishful thinking. I think a lot of Democrats believe that the quicker they can handle this, the better. And yes, everyone agrees that if they could wrap this up by Christmas before the caucuses and primaries start next year, that would be great. Not just because they have a lot of Democrats who are going to be focused on those caucuses and primaries next year running for president, but also because... Several sitting senators who would have to run for the nomination while also possibly having to be jurors in a trial. Not so easy to campaign when you're required to sit in your seat in the Senate for weeks at a time, Six not days a week. speaking. Right. Yeah. So that's a big problem. But beyond that, no phones allowed. They realize that the the longer that this drags on, the more vulnerable they are to Republican claims that Democrats are only focused on impeachment and nothing else. So they'd like to move quickly. On the other hand, you know as well as anyone how unpredictable uh, events can be in Congress, uh, you know, you're at the whims of... And if something uh, can be delayed, it typically is. Exactly. You know, these witnesses all have day jobs. They may not be able to testify on the day you want to hear from them. Uh, They may not be able to write up these articles of impeachment if it gets to that as quickly as um, leaders want them to. I mean, there's so many things that could happen to delay the process. So when listeners and viewers hear Thanksgiving, 
take that with a grain of salt. If there were a secret calendar, I would love to see it because then I, I'd know what time I can make my, <laughs> I can arrange my flight exactly. uh, for, for Thanksgiving and, and, the, and the Christmas holidays. That's the voice of Nancy Cordes, Chief Congressional Correspondent, our third expert on impeachment. Nancy, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to segment four of our impeachment banquet, if you will. Uh, All you can eat, facts, facts, facts about impeachment because it's a big story for the city of Washington, the political culture here, and for the country writ large. Our fourth expert in area of expertise who works for CBS and a trusted colleague of mine and dear friend, Paula Reed, Justice Department and White House, her current areas of expertise. Paula, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. I am thrilled to be here for the third time third on time. the takeout. Yes. Paula Reed is in a very uh, bit of exalted real estate, third time on the takeout which means the show for three times at least has been really, really good. So, Paula, great to have you with us. Help my audience, help our audience understand what role, if any, the Justice Department has played in the Ukraine story. So the Justice Department has played a big part in this story. Initially, when this whistleblower filed his or her complaint, they took a look at it and they said, okay, there's a couple questions here, right? Uh, the first is, is if we do find that this is urgent, if this is, is urgent, do we need to pass this off to Congress? Because under federal law, that's how it works. You pass off your whistleblower complaint to the inspector general, it goes to the DNI, the DNI, and then they decide if it's urgent, they are obligated to pass it off to Congress. But they wanted to get some clarity on that. Do we in fact need to, need to pass it off? So they went to the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel. Eventually, the Office of Legal Counsel came back and said no. Actually, this isn't this isn't urgent enough to, to force you, to compel you to have to pass it off to Congress. In fact, they also argue that the president is technically outside the scope of the inspector general of the intelligence community. They argue this isn't an intelligence an intelligence matter. There was another question that went to the Justice Department, though, and that was whether this conduct rose to the level of a possible criminal investigation. Right. And the Justice Department reviewed uh, what they knew. They didn't do a lot of fact-gathering. They looked at the partial record of the call. They, they looked at a few other documents, but they didn't interview people. They didn't do a big investigation. And they determined, in fact, there didn't need to be a full-on criminal investigation because the question at hand is whether this was a possible campaign finance violation. Right, were any federal laws implicated? Exactly. And the federal law that would be implicated is campaign finance violations and the fact that you cannot, as a campaign, accept anything of value from a foreign government. Right. But the Justice Department's analysis is, well, we can't really assess what would be the value of an investigation into Hunter Biden. So they decided that, in fact, there didn't have to be a criminal investigation. Now, when this was uncovered, there were a lot of questions about whether Attorney General William Barr should have just recused himself from this because he's mentioned in the call. The call with President Zelensky, which is the call that set the whistleblower who had secondhand knowledge of that call into motion. Exactly. So in the long history of the Justice Department, based on your expertise, uh, and again, not speculation, just facts, is this consistent with previous Justice Department activity or does this fall into an area that at least 
is unusual. It's unusual for for many reasons. Uh, We are so often in the Trump administration, we really are in this sort of uncharted territory. When you have an inspector general who receives a whistleblower complaint about the president of the United States, what are the rules? Do the rules on the books apply? Should the attorney general who is mentioned in the call of the foreign leader recuse? Uh, It's unusual, but the facts themselves are unusual. And there were some legitimate questions, I think, about whether the Justice Department was really hugging tight to its policy in terms of recusals and a real fact-finding mission. Mm -hmm. And does this raise questions about the loyalty or the independence of the current attorney general? It does. And in fact, that question is raised in the call uh, with Zelensky because the president refers to his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and Attorney General William Barr, suggesting both of them should be in touch uh, with with Turkey. And the question there is, well, does the president view them as one and the same, his personal attorney and his attorney general? And then we saw the way William Barr... And that would be highly unusual. Yes, exactly. A president Uh, can have a personal attorney. Many have. There's nothing wrong with that. He has several. And previous presidents have, mm-hmm. to be clear. But that's a different role than the yes. Attorney General of the United States, the Chief Law Enforcement Officer of all laws on the books of the United States government. Exactly. And and if it was any other Attorney General, perhaps people wouldn't be as suspicious because William Barr said, look, he, he didn't mention this to me. I, I didn't reach out. In fact, I'm told that he was actually a little, a little hurt that the President saw him and Rudy Giuliani as being on the same plane. We have to put this in context of how William Barr handled the Mueller investigation. Before the Mueller report was released, William Barr came out. He had a press conference. I was there. In many ways, he came across more as a defense attorney, trying to explain away and almost apologize to the president for what had happened before we actually saw the facts. And many of his critics argued that he he sort of helped spin the entire narrative in the president's favor. What would you say in your daily interactions at the White House the atmosphere currently is about the, the larger question of impeachment. impeachment yes it feels like major the lights are on but trump's the only one home i am very surprised as compared with this the special counsel's investigation how it feels there is no political strategy uh there, there are some calls there's some communication but there's no coherent strategy legally speaking yeah they, the the white house counsel sent a letter to the hill but there doesn't seem to be a coherent a legal strategy a way to defend against people who want to cooperate on the hill who they don't want to talk and then in terms of communication it appears the president uh, has taken over that uh, momentarily mick mulvaney answered some questions it didn't go so well but but it's very surprising that there isn't a more coherent strategy to address this massive this massive question right and this massive question doesn't look as if it's going away in terms of this story losing steam. This story appears to be gaining steam. It does, and with each witness who goes to the Hill and testifies, even though this happened behind closed doors, what is leaked out, it it, it tends to corroborate the whistleblower's account and raise more and more questions. And that's why we're seeing these polls reflecting increased support for the impeachment inquiry. Speaking of the whistleblower, I want to play for you soundbite number three, Zoe, and uh, get your reaction or uh, fact-based analysis on the other side of it. Thanks. So I think they want to impeach me because it's the only way they're going to win. They've got nothing. All they have is a phone call that was perfect. All they have is a whistleblower who's disappeared. Where is he? He's gone. Then they have a second whistleblower. The second whistleblower's got, oh, it's gonna, where is he? He disappeared. Don't forget, many of these people were put there during Obama, during Clinton, during the never Trumper Bush era. The never Trumpers. The good news is they're dying off fast. They're on artificial respiration, I think. 
but they want to impeach and they want to do it as quick as possible. Because we're sticking to areas of expertise, Paul, I'm not going to ask you to evaluate uh, artificial or non-artificial respiration for anyone who is for or against the president. But Bless you. The a lawyer, <laughs> not a doctor. <laughs> the other things. The whistleblower, where'd he go? He's gone. It's second gone. This it seems to be a narrative arc the president has become recently infatuated with. Yes, as if it's a Doesn't ghost. Doesn't matter. It does matter because he's trying to undermine uh, this whistleblower's credibility when, in fact, the way whistleblower laws and regulations are designed, it's designed to protect people. People come forward with allegations of, of misconduct, and as long as they do so in good faith, they are to be protected from retaliation. And one form of retaliation in a situation like this would be to make this person's identity public. But, but there's no reason that this person's identity needs to be known or that he or she has to come forward. Those who have looked at the whistleblower complaint find some sort of adjectival overwrought portions but of the facts they seem to have been cooperated in large measure Exactly, and that's a lot by of the, the transcript the White House released. Exactly by the partial record uh, released, and also by some of these witnesses, many many of whom are are longtime civil servants. Uh, these people who served in both administrations. There's enough there there that this will, as you noted, continue slow and steady. That's the voice of Paula Reed, our fourth expert on the topic of impeachment. Hope you've enjoyed it. Hope you learned something. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. For more, visit takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.